rapid. So if you're just joining us, we are working our way through the book of Colossians. And this morning we have the privilege of having David Williams come and teach. So come on up, David. David is our pastoral resident for church planting. He's moved here from Houston uh, with the hopes and prayer of planting a church here in Dallas. So from the very beginning of our church, we've believed deeply in planting new churches. And so we're so excited to have David here, not only this year, but this morning to teach us God's word from the book of Colossians. So welcome, David. I'd love to pray for you. Pray for us this morning, and we'll get started. Father, thank you so much for your word. Uh, Thank you for the way that it um, is living and active, that you've given us your Holy Spirit in order to read your word spiritually, uh, to, to be illuminated, to even be changed because of the gospel. So I pray this morning for David. Would you give him the words to speak and show us your word? And would you be with all of us as we listen? Help us not just to listen with our ears, but help us to engage with our hearts and minds that we might be further conformed into the image of Christ. We ask this in his strong and holy name. Amen. Amen and amen. Thank you, Paul. Good morning. Let us get into the word. We're in Colossians chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 9 to 14. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true, given to us in love for our good. Paul is in a Roman jail cell far away from this church. He doesn't really know them, but he has heard of them, and they are the fruit of his ministry. His prayer is not that they would have enough money to start a new building program or that they would be protected from persecution. Perhaps that they would have a robust youth ministry to attract families. Paul's prayer for the church at Colossae isn't for any of that. Paul's prayer for the church at Colossae is that they would know the Lord and fully apprehend Christ. One of the great struggles in the Christian life is prayer. How much do we pray? What do we pray for? Or if God truly knows everything, then why pray at all? But friends, prayer is intimacy. It's laying bare our souls before the Lord. 
one of the great resources available to us are the prayers in the Bible. And we should always glean from these prayers offered by his servants through the Holy Spirit. And some of the greatest prayers that we have available to us are the prayers of the Apostle Paul in his letters. One cannot read the Apostle Paul without taking away that this man knew the Lord. What we will examine in this passage is Paul's prayer for the church at Colossae, that they would intimately know the Lord. And we shall examine Paul's prayer for the church at Colossae in this passage under three headings. First, the purpose of Paul's prayer. Second, the product of prayer. And third, the posture of prayer. This leads us to our first heading, the purpose of Paul's prayer. Verses 9 and 10. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. We read in the first part of chapter 1, Paul's prayers about the church at Colossae. Here he relays his prayers for them. And he writes of the things he's praying for them. First, he's praying that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will. Second, that they would have spiritual wisdom and understanding. And third, that the Lord would empower them to live, a worthy, live in a worthy manner. Let's look at these one by one. Paul gives thanks for the report of the authenticity of their conversion. And he starts praying for their need, asking they be filled with the knowledge of the Lord's will. Paul is looking ahead to the false ideas prevalent of the day that they would encounter. False ideas of fullness based on mystic and ascetic experiences. The Greek proto-Gnosticism and Hebrew asceticism floating around based on the ideas of secret knowledge and ritual self-denial leading to being filled with God. But here what Paul is saying is that being filled is not something you can do to yourself. Being filled with God is not something that you attain. Nor is it based upon deeds that we perform. God must be the one who fills you and he fills you with the grace of his son. So by knowledge Paul is not speaking of secrets which will unlock the mysteries of the universe. He simply means the self-revelation of God given to us in his word and the assurances of his presence he gives us through prayer. Knowing God's will requires us to know him. Commentator Peter O'Brien writes, the knowledge of God's will is an understanding of what is spiritually important. Second, Paul is praying for them to have spiritual wisdom and understanding. He wants them to be wise and have understanding regarding the things of God. Spiritual wisdom 
and understanding, I characterize as two things. Being able to see things from God's perspective and having divine inside information. The knowledge Paul writes of here is the foundation of spiritual wisdom, which manifests itself in how we live. That is, knowledge leads to wisdom, which results in right living. So what Paul means by knowledge is not mere intellectual assent, but a close personal intimacy resulting from experience. It is this intimacy with the Lord that leads to wisdom, having supernatural insights that have a direct effect on how we live our lives. I believe Job sums it up well, Job 28, 28. And he said to man, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. Paul knows that the culture in which they lived, they would face an onslaught of highly trained rhetoricians and philosophers as well as those trained in the Jewish law who would attempt to either co-opt or undermine the faith that they had received. Jesus is a good start, they will say. Jesus is a path to greater knowledge. The typical Jesus plus something. Friends, you know as well as I do that there is no such thing as false knowledge, just as there is no such thing as false truth. If someone claims to know something that is not true, what they hold is not a false belief, is not false knowledge, but rather a false belief. And the problem with rhetoric and articulation is that someone with articulation can articulate a false belief and deception and make it sound very good. Even what may seem like a good idea, but not originating from the Lord, can cause us to deviate from His will. Spiritual wisdom is what gives us insight into zeroing in on God's will. Calvin writes, so long as men are characterized by their own carnal perceptions, they have also their own wisdom. But it is of such a nature as mere vanity, however much they might delight themselves in it. What spiritual wisdom and understanding enables one to do is navigate through the articulation into what is being articulated. It gives you supernatural insight into a matter to see it as God himself sees it. Brothers, the condition that we face today is the same as when Paul wrote this letter. The world is, try, is constantly trying to undermine and co-opt our message with its own. Today it's not so much philosophy that attempts to co-opt Christ, and certainly within the realm of religious tolerance, Christ is just one of many. But the way we see Jesus co-opted most often today in Western evangelical culture is in the realm of politics. If you're a Christian, they will say, then this platform represents your values. You need to vote for us. Brothers, Jesus is not a means to an end. Jesus is not a starting point for something else. Jesus is the means and Jesus is the end. 
There is nothing beyond the Lord. This was Paul's prayer for the church at Colossae. Third, he tells us why he's praying for them thus in verse 10. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Here, Paul writes what is the end of our spiritual understanding, to live in such a way that reflects the holiness, goodness, and grace of our Lord Jesus. That is, that God's redemptive and sanctifying power might be made manifest in our lives, that we would not have been taught in vain. Fully pleasing to him, not partially pleasing, but fully pleasing. Jesus said in John 8, 29, that he did those things that always please the Father. God's purpose for us in Paul's prayer for the church at Colossae is to mature to obedience to the point in all things we reflect the Son just as the Son reflects the Father. Paul's prayer is that the church at Colossae reflect the glory of Christ in their lives. He further describes what fully pleasing to him looks like practically, and this is seen in two ways. First, that they would be fully pleasing God by bearing fruit in every good work, and second, by increasing in the knowledge of God. So let us look at these. What does Paul mean by bearing fruit in every good work? In his epistles, Paul writes liberally, on fruit bearing. I believe what Paul is doing here is drawing from the language of Christ where Jesus says, if you abide in me, you shall bear much fruit. Christ has expanded upon the thought introduced by David in Psalm 1 about those who are like a tree planted by the rivers of water who bear their fruit in their season. The fruitfulness Jesus speaks of in John 15, which language Paul borrows here, are the outward evidences and manifestations of the activity of the Word of God and the Holy Spirit in our lives. Those Christ-like characteristics that only He can produce. Of course, the good works Paul is writing of are not those deeds that initiate from us, but the results of our obedience to the Word knowing and walking in the will of God. So to bear fruit in every good work is replicating Christ in all that we do out of obedience to the Word. Second, to be fully pleasing Him by increasing in the knowledge of God. Notice there is a circular pattern at work here. Increasing in God's knowledge leads to bearing fruit which leads to increasing in God's knowledge and bearing more fruit. This is how the Christian life works. As we are filled with the knowledge of God's will and it transforms us into obedient fruit bearers, we continue to grow in the knowledge of God. Paul is referencing Jesus again in John 15 on what it means to abide. Nineteenth-century Scottish theologian James Hastings. Now, this is a long quote, but I think he really says this and, and hits the nail on the head. So, bear with me. 
We are made to know Christ and he seeks to know us. We ought then to know him better than we know our best friend. He even expects us to place him first in our regard. Otherwise, we cannot be classed as among his disciples. How then is it that our knowledge is so superficial? It is due largely to the fact that we make so little use of prayer. As soon as we apprehend what knowledge is that we are seeking to obtain, we see that prayer must be necessarily the chief means for obtaining it. For this knowledge implies personal communion. It is not like the knowledge of a great historical character which depends for its fullness on the number of facts that can be obtained and verified. It is open to the simple and the ignorant as to the clever and the wise and grows through companionship. The life of this companionship in the spiritual world is what we call prayer. For prayer is the exercise of the soul in its endeavor to find and to know God. Friends, knowing the Lord is transformative. It changes you. It's not a mere intellectual ascent, but a complete transformation in our very being. Paul knew this. He experienced it. His prayer for the church at Colossae is that they would intimately know the Lord. Oh, happy they who know the Lord, with whom he deigns to dwell. He feeds and cheers them by his word. His arm supports them well. This leads us to our second heading, the product of prayer. Verse 11. Being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy. In this part of the prayer, Paul echoes other of his prayers, particularly in his letter to the church at Ephesus, where he writes, Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places? Ephesians 1, 18 to 20. So what Paul is praying for is not that they would be strengthened by a power like that which raised Christ from the dead, but that they would be strengthened by the very same power that raised Christ from the dead. So the power he writes to this church at Colossae to be filled with is the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul further makes this clear in Ephesians 3.16 where he writes that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Paul writes that they would be strengthened according to his glorious might. So let us think through this. The might of God's glory is what confers his power. It accompanied Israel in the early days. The pillar of fire by night and the cloud by day. It filled the temple to where the priest could not enter in. So Paul is praying that the church at Colossae would be so filled with the knowledge of God's will that the might of the glory of the Lord would fully empower them. 
He prays that they would increase in the knowledge of God in all endurance and patience with joy. I think it's, it's very easy to fall into the trap of associating being fruitful in only the most favorable of circumstances. Or that we can be fruitful when everything is going our way. Here, Paul lumps endurance and patience together. The ability to suffer hardship and difficulty for extended periods of time while still evidencing the activity of the Word and the Spirit in our lives. Not because circumstances are favorable, but even in spite of unfavorable circumstances. Notice with me, there's a subtle difference between endurance and patience. Endurance typically speaks of circumstances. Patience is in regard to people. Patience toward those whom one cannot repel, writes Chrysostom. In context, Paul is praying for the church at Colossae to persevere and being constant in the faith in spite of the trials of persecution and the seductions of false teachers, enduring impossible situations, and being patient with impossible people is not what I think of when I think of spiritual power. But here, this is exactly what Paul prays for the church at Colossae, that they would be empowered to do, not only endure difficulty and hardship and be patient, with impossible people, but to do so with joy. So endurance and patience, Paul was praying for the church at Colossae, was not a steady tolerance against the onslaught of worldly pressures and troubles, but being so close to Jesus, daily in His presence, abiding in Him, that they transcended their earthly troubles constantly abiding in the presence of the Lord, who is their source of joy. The knowledge of God and His abiding presence empower us not only to endure difficulty, but to do so joyfully. That's supernatural. The preeminent pastor scholar, D. Julian Williams, <laughs> writes, and I, I did write it because it's right here, it is the immature Christian who can only be happy when life circumstances are working to their advantage. It is the mature Christian whose happiness is only dependent upon their constant communing with the Lord. Doubtless, as Paul was writing this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the situation he faced at Philippi had come to mind where he and Silas were tossed in prison on false charges of sedition and having been beaten their clothes torn from them and put into the worst, most disease-riddled part of prison to await trial, all for preaching the gospel. Luke writes that after having suffered so, that at about midnight, as Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. This scene exhibits endurance and patience with joy and serves as a living example not only for the church at Colossae to follow, but us as well. 
You see, friends, when you know the Lord, when you intimately know the Lord, and you abide in His presence daily, nothing this world can throw at you, nothing you experience in this life can obstruct this. When you know the Lord, He becomes more real to you than anything in this life. When you know the Lord, you can endure anything, not just survive it. And you can do so with joy because His presence is with you. His presence sweetens all our cares and makes our burdens light. A word from Him dispels our fears and gilds the gloom of night. This leads us to our last heading, the posture of prayer, verses 12 to 14. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of light, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Giving thanks to the Father. This is a wonderful characteristic of the Christian life and the Christian prayer life as well. There is a pattern of leading prayer with thanksgiving that we see all throughout the scriptures. David writes in Psalm 100 that we are to enter his gates with thanksgiving and in his courts with praise. We give thanks to him and bless his name. We come before the Lord giving thanks. This is our posture when we come before the Lord. We don't lead with our complaints, petitions, and troubles. We start off our prayer with thanksgiving. Notice with me, Paul writes this letter from prison. He doesn't ask the Colossians to pray for him or to try to raise bail money. His prayer is for them that they would know the Lord and grow in him. You see, friends, present turmoil does not negate a thankful disposition. Our focus should always be on the Lord's plans and purposes. A thankful disposition will keep us from a sense of entitlement. A thankful attitude will lift our gaze to the Lord in what He has done and takes the focus off of ourselves. It's easy to fall into the thinking that God is all about us, catering to our whims, desires, as if He owes us something. The next section, Paul tells the church at Colossae exactly why they should be thankful. He writes that the Lord has qualified us, giving us an inheritance with the saints. That means that through nothing of our own means, nothing we were born into, born with, attained, or learned, God has made us competent to receive a share reserved for those whom He has made holy. He qualified us. We must all remember that we brought nothing to the table except our own sin and misery. That's all we had to offer God. So being qualified speaks to our justification, having been made right with God. Additionally, we've been qualified to an inheritance. This is language alluding to the Israelites in the land of Canaan, where the land was reserved for them by lot. Now, of course, our inheritance is much greater than what the Israelites had. 
The Lord himself is our inheritance and he's given us his very presence. We continually give thanks because our Lord has given us his very righteousness. He's seated us with him, marked out our sins and transgressions. This is why Paul was so thankful and it explains to the church of Colossae why they are to be thankful. Paul further elaborates on why we give thanks, writing, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The work of Christ can never be overstated. When we were helpless, hopeless, slaves to our own desires, bound for a devil's hell, when we were looking to satisfy our lusts and pride, when we had no regard for the Lord or His Son, when we were consumed with the things of this world, the Lord sent His Son to die on a sinner's cross to pardon our sin. We come to Him in faith, repentance. He gave us His Word, gave us His Holy Spirit, made us alive with Jesus Christ, and he gives us himself as an inheritance. No matter what, a Christian has no right to ever be discouraged. We can be disappointed, but never discouraged. Everything, setbacks, disappointments, tragedies, Nothing can conceal or overshadow what the Lord has wrought for us through Christ. For those of us who know the Lord, even death is on our side. Here Paul writes his prelude for what will follow, writing that we've been delivered from the domain of darkness, the domain of darkness, earthly wisdom, false claims of secret knowledge, any claims of knowledge or understanding or wisdom apart from the Lord rooted in the wicked human imagination. This is what Paul calls, this is what Paul calls darkness. Paul further writes that it is God who delivered us, reminding us that it is all of His grace and not by works of righteousness which we have done. Secret knowledge that we have gained or by some effort on our part. In all of the world religions, there is an entrance and a path to walk. At the end, there is a final evaluation made regarding one's progress on this path to determine one's ultimate acceptance and entry into whatever their gates of glory may be. There is no guarantee of getting through at the end. It all depends on your effort and merit. Whether your good outweighs your bad or if you've progressed in attaining the right knowledge or disassociating yourself from the material aspects of this life. In the final assessment, it all depends on you. But in Christ, nothing is based on our merit. Christ offers forgiveness as well as new and eternal life from the very beginning. Not in the hope of a final acceptance, but because we've been made acceptable by Him. 
who gives us his merit from the very start. John 5, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. In closing, there is an inherent danger of being only acquainted with the Lord. We can be co-opted, redirected by the world and not even be aware. This is the purpose of Paul's prayer for Colossae, that they would know the Lord and that they would know the Lord intimately. We are accepted by God in Christ. There is nothing beyond him. And when we come to him, we simply fathom the depths of him in continual joy of discovery. Jesus never gets old. Christ is not a box we check off and then go on about our lives. Jesus is not part of our life. He is our life. So Paul's prayer for the church at Colossae is just as relevant today as it was then. We still face the same fallen, corrupted world that tries to undermine our faith. There is a difference between being introduced to the Lord, being acquainted with the Lord, and knowing the Lord. The invitation extended by Christ is not to come and be acquainted, but come to know him intimately. Not merely to be familiar with him, but to be involved with him to the point to where our entire being is changed. He helped his saints in ancient days who trusted in his name. And we can witness to his praise, his love is still the same. Lord, we expect to suffer here, nor would we dare repine. But give us still to find thee near, and own us still for thine. Let us enjoy and highly prize these tokens of thy love, till thou shalt bid our spirits rise to worship thee above. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who makes it alive. Father, I pray that this message that Paul wrote to Colossae, Father, this word is alive. May it take root in our hearts. May it yield much fruit. In Jesus' name, amen.